Our reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you are really, really unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened leavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reveler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not those inside the church whom you are to judge. God judges those on the outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you all. Um, it really is great to be back here at Village South. Um, I don't find myself here often, but when I do, um, it's a real privilege because I get to see such a visible, sort of tangible picture of, of God building his church. Um, it really is such an encouragement to see that every time I come back, there's, there's more of you here. Um, so we'll give thanks to God for that. Um, and yeah, it's great that when I come here, I see faces that I don't know. Um, I don't know some of your names. So um, that, that's a big encouragement to me. And hopefully over the next kind of weeks and months, I'll, uh, yeah, I'll get to know of you, get to know some of you um, a little more. So um, great to be with you here. As most of you will know, um, as a church in both locations here in South and over in East, we've been working through the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, whatever you like to call it. Um, this letter written by the Apostle Paul, Uh, to the early church in Corinth. And a series like this one is fairly typical uh, of the the approach that we take here at Village to uh, to teaching God's word. And this approach is often called expository teaching, which basically just means that we take a section of scripture, a book of the Bible or a chunk of that book, and we work through it verse by verse and chapter by chapter, with the meaning of each passage being kind of exposed or revealed to us by that passage itself. And occasionally we'll take a more kind of topical or thematic approach to our teaching, but largely we'll follow this kind of expository model. And what this does is it begins to give us an overview of kind of whole books um, or sections of the Bible and gives us an understanding of those and the themes that they contain. And as God works through the words of the expositor as they reveal what's meant by these passages, um, God just reveals his word to us um, and gives us an understanding of what he wants his church to hear. And when talking about the role of teaching in the life of the church, Lucas, um, in the past, you've maybe heard this before, often compares 
uh, teaching and the sermons that we hear to meals and nourishment. He said in the past that although we rely on three meals a day that we eat around the same time every day of our life, how many of those meals can you actually remember? I know I can think of a few, but they probably all involve pizza or something like that. But um, each and every other one that I consumed, all those meals that I maybe don't remember were just as essential for my sustenance and my nourishment as the ones that you do remember and enjoy so much. And so teaching of God's word is the same. We should, of course, strive to remember as much of God's word as possible. But the point is that although God might not use each and every sermon we hear to do a dramatic life or heart-transforming work in us in that moment, he's using every single one to cumulatively do that same work. There will be times, of course, when he intervenes and does do something more sudden in the moment, and those will be those meals, if you like, that we remember. But for the most part, it's an ongoing, consistent process. And this is why an expository approach is so important, as all of God's word is important and valuable to us and has a part to play in us being sanctified and being made more like Jesus as we sit under the authority of the full counsel of his word. And so we'll see as we come to this this passage today, we're going to see the beauty of this approach and see why it's so important. As we work through a book such as this one, week by week, we find that we almost know what to expect in the next week. In the sense that you know chapter 5 is going to follow on from chapter 4, but also in the sense that in the case of 1 Corinthians, the longer we spend in this book, the more we understand Paul, the more we understand the situation in the Corinthian church, and the more we get to understand the message of the power of the gospel which he was trying to deliver. But in that sense that you, the church, know that we got to the end of chapter 4 last week, I would hope that you would notice if I skipped over chapter 5 and moved straight to chapter 6 this week. And that is exactly what the temptation could be. You see, if we were in the habit of kind of a a topical or a thematic approach to teaching here in Village, there would be a temptation to skip over this passage. And I would contend that this would be one of those passages that nobody would put their hand up to take on. Struggle to imagine that immorality, adultery, incest, and excommunication would be high on the list of things that topical preachers would choose to preach on. These things often make us feel uncomfortable. They describe unpleasant situations that we kind of hope will never have any relevance to us or our church. And even our very resistance to want to engage with these passages, I feel, reveals something to us about our own sinful nature. We almost don't want to think that we ourselves would be capable of the kind of sin being addressed here. And yet, if we did skip these passages, we would be neglecting important God-breathed counsel to the church in how to address some of these matters. And as we'll see today, we'd miss not only the account of a badly handled situation in a first century church, but also a picture of the importance of our church being committed to a godly and biblical discipline, not only in cases of sexual immorality, but in any instance of unrepentant sin in the lives of its members. So this feels like a heavy passage to us. I know that the passage itself weighed heavy on me this week. Um, These are topics and issues that don't sit right with our kind of Western, middle-class, liberal sensibilities. But it is such an important passage for exactly that reason. Alistair Begg has described this very chapter of the Bible as being like spiritual dynamite, which we must handle with care. 
So let's pray together at this point just that God would make us receptive to what he'd be saying to us this morning um, and that he would do a heart-changing work in all of us this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, just still our hearts as we turn to your word now this morning. Fix our eyes only on Jesus, God, and pray just as we open your word here that anything that I say that is not right would not even be heard or remembered. And anything that is true and good and right and of you, God, would be grasped and held on to by your church. Reveal to us your message for us this morning, God. Amen. So by, very, by way of a very brief recap, um, over the past six weeks or so, we've worked through the opening chapters of, of 1 Corinthians. Um, Jess alluded to this already this morning. We, we kind of called this section um, of 1 Corinthians the imperfect church. So that was not to suggest that there is any such thing as a perfect church, but these opening chapters kind of revealed to us the issues that had arisen in this early church that Paul sought necessary to correct the Corinthians on. He exercises this deep duty of care to a young church, almost like the kind of, uh, almost taking on the role of a loving parent towards the church. He corrects their thinking when it came to their identity, the source and security of their salvation, and where they are to find wisdom and honor. Paul is saying in the opening chapters, this is who you are and this is what you are to believe. And now as we move into the next section of 1 Corinthians, this section will be entitled Life Together. And Paul, having already clarified who they are in Christ, will now begin instructing the Corinthians on how to go and live like the new creations that they are. He's delivering instructions for the flourishing of Christian community as it goes on mission to glorify our risen Christ. Some of these instructions, as we'll see today, will be difficult and even messy in the outworking of them, but they're necessary for the benefit of the church. And as we came through chapter four last week, we did see Paul continuing in that role of a loving parent. He's encouraging the church's leaders to, uh, he's encouraging church's leaders to rebuke um, and to encourage their flock. And in these next few chapters, we'll almost see the epitome of Paul's whole theology. He's saying, in Christ you have been made new. Now go and live like you've been made new. Live together like the new creations that you are. We're going to look at this chapter today by considering three things. Firstly, the issue being addressed. We'll then examine Paul's instruction to the church. And finally, we'll consider the implications of this instruction. As we saw in verses 14 to 21 of chapter 4 last week, Paul was encouraging those Corinthian leaders to warn, exhort, and rebuke the church. And here, straight into chapter 5, we see an example of a situation when this leadership had not occurred. So firstly this morning, the issue which Paul is addressing. The church in Corinth, as we've seen over previous weeks, believed they had a lot going for it. They had a lot of pride. They were proud of their standing, their power, their leadership. But when confronted with the next part of Paul's letter, they would see even further as we will today that all was not well. You read with me verse one. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. The issue in Corinth, as we can see, is pretty clear. It's that a man is having sexual relations with his father's wife. 
And the use of that phrase, father's wife, gives us good grounds to believe that this was his stepmother and not his biological mother. But Paul doesn't give any more detail um, in regards to the circumstances around this, whether his father was alive or dead, married or divorced, because none of these details would have changed the fact that this was a flagrant act of immorality in the church. That, as Paul says, even the pagans or the Gentiles wouldn't have endorsed. The Christians in Corinth at the time would have been very aware that this was a type of sin explicitly prohibited by the Torah. Leviticus 18.7 reads that you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife, it is your father's nakedness. So under Levitical law, to dishonor your father's wife was to dishonor your father. But even outside of that, this kind of illicit union was also forbidden under Roman law and was abhorrent even to the Romans. You know, you've gone pretty far from orthodoxy when even the Romans are raising an eyebrow. You didn't have to be a Christian to know that this was not right. And as we've read in previous weeks, the city of Corinth was like this, this hub, this cesspit, this hive of immorality, if you will. So to find a case of immorality in the church that even the culture around the church was reviled by gives you an indication of the severity of this. In today's environment, you could think, for example, of the inhabitants of Amsterdam's red light district looking on with disgust at immoral acts happening within the church. Safe to say, again, we've erred pretty far from orthodoxy when the world is judging us this poorly by their own moral standards. Any of you familiar with the filmmaker Woody Allen? So those of you who are familiar with him might know that in the 90s he was embroiled in a scandal similar to this one, um, resulting from his relationship and subsequent marriage to Soon Yi Previn. She was the adopted daughter of his ex-wife. And this became a very public scandal at the time, but general opinion and consensus on issues like this one and like so much else in the difficult age in which we live as Christians continue to come under rethinking. In issues relating to family and moral purity, the climate is changing so quickly. But such is the sufficiency of scripture that it even explicitly addresses some of these very 21st century issues with clear instructions. And what is important to note here before we proceed any further is the little word of has at the end of verse one. A man has his father's wife. Has, not had. And I wanna be really clear about that because this was not a one-time thing. It wasn't a one-night stand, if you will, followed by a genuine and sincere repentance. But it was an ongoing act, a persistent and defiant act of sin. Had it been the case that the individual had sought forgiveness and repented from sin, which continued no more, that would have been a very different issue. But here we're dealing with a member of the church who has not shown any remorse or repentance, nor any response to any prior attempts by the church to discipline and the woman in question here, we can assume, was not a believer because Paul issues no instruction to her. And so we'll see the main issue which Paul is writing to address here is not actually the sin of the individual, but rather the lack of an appropriate response to this from the church. Verse 2 reads, And you're arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Hearing quite clearly see that despite the sin of the individual, this is not the crux of what Paul is getting at in this message. Paul will address how we're to pursue purity in specific areas of life later in his letter, and he will address the issue of sexual relations in chapter 6, 
But for now, Paul is addressing what he sees to be a much more pressing issue. The real issue in the mind of Paul, as he says to the Corinthians, is that this is going on in your church and you're arrogant. You're proud. He's saying that it's bad enough that this sin happens, but it is ridiculous that the church is proud. John Piper says that this pride was a sign of how far the church had moved from godliness and God's clear instructions and how full of its own importance it had become. And we're unsure as to whether the church was actively proud of this specific situation or whether it was operating out of a general state of pride and overlooking or choosing to ignore that this was happening. And that on the surface might sound ridiculous or preposterous or we might think, how, how could that have happened? But we can see even today that this continues to happen. Can we think of any times when sin has been overlooked in the church because it's been committed by a key figure or a member of staff? Or are churches today still distracted by factions? In Corinth, it was over Apollos and Paul. Maybe our churches have been more concerned about politics or ministry programs than they have about each other's purity. However, it's also possible that the actions of the individual in question here were regarded as an expression of Christian freedom in the eyes of the Corinthians. This wasn't completely uncommon um, in this time, as we can see from Paul's opponents in Romans 3, who suggested that they should be allowed to sin that grace might abound. That they go on sinning because that magnifies God's grace. Galatians 5 tells us that we are free in Christ but in Corinth, grace had turned into license and freedom had turned into lawlessness. But Paul says, don't use that freedom to sleep with your stepmother. Don't use that freedom to serve the flesh. Paul was so aware that for the people in Corinth, it would have been near impossible to have resided in this city and not have been contaminated by it. People to whom Paul wrote were in such an environment where there would always have been the temptation to respond as the Corinthians perhaps did with an inoffensive tolerance. And right there we can see the parallel with our society today. Culture tells us that toleration is the mark of love. Anything other than complete tolerance and acceptance is perceived as hate. And for the church to do anything to intervene or transform or influence is to move into an area which our culture tells us we have no right to be in. And perhaps there were those in, in Corinth who in the face of this temptation acted under the guise of a false humility. A false humility which said, in the face of such sin in the church, who am I to judge? Or who am I to throw the first stone? Or nobody's perfect. But this sinful toleration and the pride of the Corinthians in thinking it was okay and that they could continue on as normal was the issue which Paul is really addressing here. And so the Corinthians might have asked, does it really matter? But as Paul continues, it matters very much. You see, the first words of this chapter read that it had been reported. The watching world was aware of what was going on. And the Corinthians were still boasting. Paul says that they should have been mourning instead. See, as Christians, we must not tolerate any sin either in our own lives or in our church. Ephesians 5.3 says that sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. 
So whenever the church does not take sin seriously, the watching world has every right to think that something wrong is going on in there. So the issue was clear. A member of the church was guilty of a sin that even the pagans would not tolerate. The church's testimony was compromised, but it carried on business as usual when it should have been crushed, filled with grief, and ready for action. Which leads us to the instruction which Paul gives in dealing with such ongoing, willful, and persistent sin in the church. And I want to once again just stress that the situation Paul is addressing is an extreme one. And so the instruction he's delivering is one which should be seen as a last resort, not the first port of call when it comes to church discipline. And still in verse 2, we see Paul ask, ought you not rather to mourn? The word used for mourning here is the same one that would be used to describe the feeling of losing a loved one. Paul is suggesting that in cases such as this one where a brother or sister falls into this kind of sin, that this should stir such a sense of genuine grief as though we had lost someone dear to us. Grief over the evil one's success, sorrow at the suffering of the congregation, mourning for the sinner who has been overwhelmed, and an acknowledgement that it is only by the grace of God that we do not find ourselves in such a situation. Paul detects the absence of this grief when in verse 2 he asks, "Ought, Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. And so we see here and in verses 7 and 13 the required action which should have occurred and the instruction to the church is that the guilty, impenitent, unrepentant person must be put out of the church. This is what we now understand in the term of excommunication. And the instruction here to remove this person is linked to the response of mourning which Paul has just spoken of. Whenever grief is real, action will follow. But as we can see in the Corinthian church, there is a lack of grief and therefore no action. So contrast this instruction for a moment just with the false humility that would be too afraid to judge, too afraid to seem holier than thou. But Paul says this is arrogance. This is arrogance and true humility would have stirred mourning and grief. A true spirit of humility submits to God's word and does not presume to know better than him in how to deal with these matters. True humility would have brought action. John Piper says that humility does not tell God how to be gracious. It listens and tries to obey. So Paul's instruction is clear. He says, purge the evil person from among you. Remove this person from your presence. And this kind of command can stir a lot of kind of discomfort in us. But it is this grief that Paul has talked about that gives us an insight into the motive for discipline and the manner in which it should be carried out. Excommunication should only be carried out from a place of broken-hearted submission to God's instruction in weeping and mourning for our so-called brother and their salvation. There's to be no satisfaction found in this kind of discipline. But then Paul goes further In verses three to five, he says, for though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you're to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. 
the instruction to this church is hand this man over to Satan. What a terrifying, terrifying statement that is. Hand him over to Satan, the ruler of this world. Put him who continues to show such disregard for Christ and his church out into the world and out of the care of the church family. This emphasizes that excommunication is not just a physical act, not just a physical removing and barring from the church community of the individual in question, but it's a spiritual act, which as verse 4 tells us is to be done in the name of our Lord Jesus and with the power of our Lord Jesus. Now, as Paul continues, the example that he uses to kind of illustrate the severity of the situation is taken from the book of Exodus and the account of the Israelites being delivered from slavery in Egypt. And as the account tells us, the Israelites were instructed to leave Egypt in such haste that they were to leave their bread on leavens. They weren't to wait for the yeast to work and the bread to rise. And following the Israelites' deliverance from bondage, God instructs them in Exodus 12, 14, when he says, This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses, for if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Now these instructions which are repeated throughout Exodus 12 are a reference to the Passover festival in which yeast or leaven, as the Israelites remembered their, their, their freeing um, from, from Egypt, where yeast and leaven would be, would be symbolic of sin. So no yeast was allowed in the house for a week after Passover. And it had to be removed from the household before the Passover lamb was slain. Only then would the celebration begin. But what Paul is saying here to the Corinthians is that as our ultimate Passover lamb is Christ, who died once as an atonement for all our sins, our lives should then be a perpetual, ongoing Passover celebration as blood-bought sons and daughters celebrating our deliverance from bondage to sin. And so Paul says, if this is the case of we're existing in this perpetual, ongoing Passover celebration, then it is entirely inappropriate for there to be yeast or sin from our pre-converted days being present and tolerated in our church. Christ is now the Passover lamb, The Passover festival is now a lifetime. Leaven is sin, and so we are to be against it, and we are to fight it, and we are to get rid of it. Now, anyone who's done any baking will know the effect that yeast has and just how little of it you need to use. And Paul says the same is the case within the church. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. When the church tolerates the sin of one or two It has the effect of one rotten banana spoiling the whole fruit bowl. So Paul is saying, in your supposed knowledge of grace and freedom, in which you're boasting, you're destroying the church from the inside out. You call it grace or humility, but you're arrogant and you're ignorant. Verse 7 reads, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. The reality, brothers and sisters, is that we will sin every day. None of us are perfect, but we are never to make peace with our sin. We are to hate our sin 
and any evidence of it in our own lives or in our church. And this is what was missing in Corinth, and in its place was pride. Pride which said, Christ was sacrificed for my sins, so I will magnify his grace by sinning. Pride which said, it didn't really matter, nobody's perfect anyway. And pride which says, let's back off all the heavy stuff because God loves us anyway. God knows our hearts. But Paul is asking us, are we willing to follow the radical, ruthless instruction of God and live with the consequences that it may have? Church discipline is never comfortable. It's never pleasant. But as we're about to see, as we look at the implications, it's hugely necessary. I want you to think for a moment of a mother and father who have just witnessed the health of one of their children deteriorate without knowing the cause. They then discover that the child has contracted a deadly terminal and what will be eventually a contagious illness. But on meeting with a team of healthcare professionals, professionals, they're told that there is a prescribed treatment for their child. But it does have some side effects. So in the immediate term, it'll make their child considerably more ill. It will cause pain. It will cause grief for the parents as they watch this treatment taking place. It will then require a lengthy rehabilitation period in which the child will have to live with certain implications of the treatment. But by the end of the process, the child will recover to a fuller quality of life than they had previously had without any evidence of the illness remaining. What would you think of those parents if they chose not to take the admittedly difficult path of having their child treated and instead carried on as normal, allowed the illness to not only take hold of their child, but spread to the rest of the family and ultimately result in death? And all because they didn't want to endure a painful or difficult process. It sounds crazy, but the leaders of the church in Corinth were acting just like that. As difficult and as unpleasant as church discipline can inevitably be, like anything which the gospel permeates when we follow God's clear instruction, we have sure reason for hope. So let's first look at the implications of godly church discipline for the disciplined individual. And in doing so, we're going to return to verse 5, which as we've read says, you're to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, I think we can infer here that the word flesh is in reference to our sinful nature and our fleshly desires rather than our physical body. But the only place outside the writings of Paul where words describing someone being handed over to Satan are used are in Job chapter 2, verse 6, where it reads, And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he, he being Job, is in your hand. Only spare his life. Only spare his life. And here in the book of Job, we see God in his sovereignty being able to use Satan and his schemes of evil to achieve his own purposes. The trials that Satan would send to Job became a means to Job's holiness. And the result with Job, and it is worth reading the whole book if you never have before, the result is in chapter 42, When having lost everything and been scourged by the attacks of Satan, Job confesses and repents before God and says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. 
I have heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. This is Christ using the very effects of Satan at work to achieve his purpose. Jesus, the king of all the universe, takes the hands of Satan and says, you're going to serve me. You're going to facilitate my plan for my servant, for my glorification. Paul was aware of this himself. It was, after all, the purposes of Satan which had him on the road to Damascus when God's plan intervened. And in Luke 15, we see the parable of the prodigal son where the younger son, having removed himself from the family fold, then has everything taken from him and finds himself in a pigsty questioning everything before returning to ask for forgiveness. And so we see if it's what it requires to bring a person back to the fold, Jesus will commission anything to destroy the flesh, to put to death our sinful nature and our fleshly desires, to destroy everything but the spirit of the person until they say, now my eyes have seen. To Christ, and he knows and he experienced himself that there is no cost too great if it means the salvation of a soul. And the very worst that Satan can do to a person is always within the authority of Jesus. And so we see the purpose of the discipline here is for the benefit of the soul of the individual, that their spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. And this should always be our motivation and our sure hope even in these extremes of church discipline that the person in question will be saved for heaven through that process. In verse 11, Paul describes the individual in question as one who bears the name of brother. This has also been translated as so-called brother. This is such an unsettling description of someone. Maybe these people are, and maybe these people aren't. We don't know, but that is exactly why we must take Scripture's instruction seriously. Because as Alistair Begg says, by our toleration, we may usher a man into hell, but by our punishment, we may save him for heaven. And lastly, the implications of discipline for the church fellowship. So in verses 9 to 11, Paul begins to clear up another misunderstanding held by the Corinthians. They had taken the instruction to not associate themselves with the sexually immoral as meaning they were to have no dealings with anyone outside of the church. Paul clarifies that rather we are not to associate in terms of Christian fellowship with anyone marked by sexual immorality who bears the name of brother. And the command not to eat with them refers to us not breaking bread at the Lord's table as we will do shortly with that itself being the ultimate picture of exclusion from Christian fellowship. But Paul says it's precisely because we are, in fact, called to engage with those outside of our church that the exercising of discipline is so crucial. See, the church in Corinth had spent its time doing what Paul says it shouldn't do. It had become pharisaical. It sought to hide itself from the sin on the outside while tolerating the sin of its believers on the inside. Paul says your focus is all wrong. So whenever a church compromises by tolerating deliberate, obvious, and repeated sin in its fellowship, then that church becomes a charade, and it brings into question 
in the eyes of the world the reality of its faith. Earlier this year, if you were with us, we explored the Sermon on the Mount where we see Jesus calling us to be salt and light in the world in which we live. But we'll only ever be as light and distinctive as a church cumulatively as we all are individually. And so as a church, we should exist in a perpetual state of being open to discipline and accountability for the sake of the unity of our church and the integrity of our witness to the world around us. As we encounter a brother or sister in danger of error or falling into sin of any kind, this must always be seen as an opportunity for self-examination because this is what true biblical humility looks like. John Piper continues by saying, biblical humility is when we say, I'm going to remove the log from my eye before carrying out whatever eye surgery God has asked me to do for my brother or sister. And this is the key to effective evangelism. We're called to live distinct lives as the royal priesthood which we're part of in view of all of the world. But our witness fails when we're too remote from unbelievers and too relaxed to sin within our church. When this happens, the world and unbelievers will see no distinction in our church. All they see are the same sins, the same gods, and the same problems, and the same hypocrisy which Jesus addressed in the Sermon on the Mount. Just think of the damage that has been done in churches across the world by cases of sexual immorality and even sexual abuse, and how smug the world watches on thinking, I knew those guys were no good, and how right the world is to judge when these things aren't appropriately dealt with. The temptation in our pride is always to back off the heavy stuff because that will make us more liked. It'll make us more accepted and our message to the world more palatable. Pride says that that is what will grow our church. But here we see that it's only an unmistakable distinctiveness which really does this. A radical difference witnessed by the world amongst the people of God as they relate to each other and as they relate to sex, money, possessions, alcohol, and the use of their words. And we'll begin to unpack some of that stuff over the coming weeks. So Paul is saying here to the church, as he always does, be what you are. You have been made new as a result of your faith and trust in the work of the Lord Jesus. Therefore, you must see to it that on a daily basis, you get rid from amongst you anything which would undermine this. We're to walk in the light of God's presence and welcome his revealing of the darkness inside our own hearts that we might confess this and know forgiveness of our sins and continue in fellowship with the church. So as we close, discipline is a good thing in the church. And I hope that kind of from this, um, you, you can see that. And it's something that we shouldn't be afraid of. It's so necessary As we can see, it's for the benefit of the very soul of the individual being disciplined and for the benefit of the unity and the witness of the church. Praise God this morning that in looking at this specific situation that we're only dealing with the abstract, that we don't find ourselves in a situation exactly like that one. But let us take seriously the call that Paul is issuing to us 
a call to radical, ruthless discipleship, accountability, and discipline in response to any sin found in our own lives or in our church. Let us welcome these things in our church, brothers and sisters, because I I know I definitely need it. See, the world won't care if we like Jesus. It won't care if we go to church on a Sunday. But it will care and it will take notice when we say that certain things are categorically wrong because God said so. And it's only when we do this and we're also a church committed to its own purity that we will make any positive impact in the world for his kingdom. God takes the purity of his people seriously and we should expect him to. It's like the concern any loving father should have for his children. So let's take the pursuit of our own purity seriously because in that is the very proof of our pardoning from sin. Amen. So we're now, as we do every week, um, going to come to the Lord's table. And as we do, we're going to remember the sacrifice that Jesus has made to make all of this possible. This is a somber time where we remember the suffering of our glorious Savior, but it's also a celebration. This is also our Passover feast where we give thanks for the lamb who was slain. Hebrews 10 reads, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. As Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. There's nothing more we can add or nothing we need to add. So don't take this lightly this morning, brothers and sisters. Do take it as an opportunity to examine your own hearts. And if there is anything in there, any leaven that needs dealt with, do that this morning. Because our Father's call to repentance from our sin is an open-armed invitation to us to run to him.